good morning. My name is Ed, and if you're visiting with us here or online, I'm, I'm one of the pastors here at Gateway. Okay, today is our uh, third conversation in, in a series we've called Rescued, and it is an exploration of the Old Testament book of Exodus. And I'm going to back up from our passage this morning in a minute and ask some big picture questions that I've been getting. I've had actually three conversations in the last two weeks, one with a person who uh, was emailing me who's been watching us online, and then a couple of other conversations here that have... Uh, made me think that periodically through this series, I want to back up and ask some frequently asked questions. So we'll do that this morning. We have time and space. But I, I want to give you up front today, the point of today, if you miss everything else, don't miss this. Our God saves. More than that, our God is in the salvation business. This is what he does. He saves us from ourselves, from our sins, from our from our mistakes, from our damages. And he, he saves us for himself, for the display of his character, for an eternal relationship with him. God saves us. And, and everything God does in us, through us, around us, and amongst us, he does aimed in that direction, our salvation. So, if you were here last week, you'll remember that in chapter 1 we learned that Pharaoh was worried about the Pharaoh of Egypt was worried about the rising tide of Israelite immigration. He tried to stop it. First, he ordered the Israelites be made slaves, but according to chapter 1, verse 12, quote, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Next, he tried infanticide by ordering midwives to kill all of the Hebrew boys. They disobeyed, and according to chapter 1, verse 20, quote, the people multiplied and grew even stronger, end quote. Finally, he resorted to genocide, all-out uh, ethnic cleansing. He told all the people to throw all Hebrew sons into the river to be drowned. So it's in that context that a very brave Israelite couple got married and had a baby. In fact, they had a baby boy. And here's the story. Exodus chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and that's quite a heritage for this young boy because the tribe of Levi was the, the tribe of the Israelite company from which the priests and those who attended to the temple always came. A Levite man married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. I want you to imagine the tension in their lives during this period. Every time the child cries, it is a cause for alarm. Uh, the boy is in constant danger from all of the people, from, you know, from Pharaoh's order, but so are the parents. They have blatantly disobeyed a countrywide order of the king. And after three months, it becomes too much to bear. And the baby is in increasing danger. So verse 3, But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now, Look, of course, the baby is the star of the show here. In fact, uh, the, the mother is not even named. It's several chapters in Exodus before we learn that her name is Jochebed. 
But look at the second part of verse 3, if you would. A more accurate and, and, and maybe a more revealing translation of that, that one section at the end of verse 3 might be, uh, she arranged, she intentionally fixed the child in the basket. And same word, she arranged it, she intentionally fixed it among the reeds along the bank. Notice the care she's given, giving here. She, she is not consigning the child to death. She, she's not abandoning her child. Else, why take such care? And why have the sister stand guard over the whole process? This is a clever and a desperate attempt to save her child. She was submitting her child into the hands of God, which ultimately, parents, we all have to do. Now, verses 5 through 10, let's hear the uh, finale of this story, and let's go old school. Let's stand out of reverence for God's word as we look at verses 5 through 10. Then Pharaoh's daughter <clears throat> went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her slave girl to get it. Slave girl opened it, and she saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. Well, this is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister, you know, sister runs up, asks Pharaoh's daughter, uh, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered, and the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me. I will pay you. Moms, imagine the government is going to pay you to take care of your own kid. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, remember that, saying, I drew him out of the water. All right, may the Lord open this up to our hearts. You may be seated. There are at least two things to make note of in verses 5 through 10, and you may think of others. But number one, this is an incredible coincidence, right? This is an incredible set of circumstances. And isn't that often how we kind of think of our lives, you know, uh, a Boy, I got really lucky there, or I, got, I, got, I was really unlucky there. But the Bible trains us to recognize that God is always at work. There are no coincidences. I remember a couple of years ago, right before uh, the, the pandemic, uh, someone went, came to our service at Gateway, again, a pretty regular person. They, they went out to eat afterwards, and they saw, I don't even know how this conversation happened, but they, there was a woman they didn't know, recognized they'd seen one another over the summer at the pool uh they're having lunch right next to one another and this woman seemed very upset they got in this conversation it became this epic conversation and you know i just i'm upset about this and and i i i don't even know what to think i just went to this church service i haven't been in a while and this minister saying well i go to that church really yes i mean and i you know there are no coincidences God arranges the circumstances of our lives. This is not only proof that God is at work in our most desperate hours, but it shows us the kind of work he does. Second thing I want you to notice about these verses is notice the, the perfect arrangement of the circumstances here. Notice what God has, has put together. If God wanted to raise a liberator for his people during this period in history, it's hard to imagine he could have arranged more, the circumstances more perfectly. First of all, 
given the point in history it is, it would almost definitely have to have been a man. And he would have needed to been able to relate to the Israelites, and he would have been able to, needed to have been able to understand how the power circles work in Egyptian power and how to navigate those circles. It would help if he had a premium education. And by the way, you know what else? It would help if he had some experience in the desert. And we'll get to that next week. So can you imagine a better set of circumstances within which to build the perfect liberator for God's people for this point in history? It's almost as if it's by design. Our God is in the salvation business. This is what he does. Our God saves. He's doing that in our lives today, even through the most desperate circumstances. He saved Moses, and through that salvation, he built a liberator who would lead all of God's people to salvation. Our God saves. And just to highlight that point, did you you know that the name Jesus means Savior or Rescuer? If you know the story, you'll remember that the angel told Joseph, hey, Joseph, you're going to have a baby. He's from God. I want you to name him Savior. Give him the name Rescuer because our God saves. All God's people said amen. All right. Uh, I want us to step back for a minute. We'll return to this, but I want us to step back for a minute and um, let's ask some much larger, bigger picture questions of this whole section of scripture why we're even doing this so first question first frequently asked question is are there really people who deny the existence of Moses I said this uh, three weeks ago in our first lesson in uh, the uh, in, in Exodus and if so why do they yes many people many scholars deny the existence of Moses and I'm talking about people who study this with their lives consistently They believe that Moses didn't even actually exist. So why do they believe that? Well, we talked about this again in our first conversation three weeks ago, and if you want a fuller explanation, go back and grab week one of this series. We deal with this in some detail, but reason one to question Moses' existence would be the fact that Moses isn't mentioned in Egyptian texts. He isn't mentioned anywhere outside of the Bible in ancient texts. Now, I won't repeat myself here, but as we said in week one, that's not incredibly surprising. The ancient world kept very limited records overall, and the Egyptians in particular tended to, uh, their records tended to be propaganda. In fact, maybe outrageous propaganda. So it's not surprising that they wouldn't record the uh, Exodus events, but they didn't. Another reason scholars are prone to doubt this, I, I talking to Diane about this this week, and Diane, who's been around this a long time, said, really? She'd never heard this, but it's true. Uh, Another reason that scholars tend to doubt this account is because the idea of an abandoned child who rises to greatness was a popular motif in the ancient world. One history of the ancient Near East lists 30 examples of this exact kind of story. The most famous example of this is probably the account of Sargon, king of Akkad. Now, Sargon lived and ruled centuries before uh, Israel was even in Egypt. Listen to part of his story, the first of his story. This is, this is a quote from the legend of Sargon, and I want you to see this. Sargon, the mighty king, king of Agade, am I. My mother was a changeling. My father I knew not. The brother of my father loved the hills. 
My city is Azuprianu, which is situated on the banks of the Euphrates. My changeling mother conceived me. In secret, she bore me. She set me in a basket of rushes with bitumen. She sealed my lid. She cast me into the river, which rose not over me. And then according to the legend, uh, Sargon was rescued out of the water by a gardener named Aki, and, and Aki raised him, and then uh, Sargon rose to be a great ruler. So the presence of this kind of story leads some people to the conclusion that the Israelites have just borrowed an ancient motif and, and, and they've added to, to their history to add to the mythology of their great ruler. For example, I read an article many years ago by a scholar writing in the New Yorker. It's not a scholarly magazine. He was writing in the New Yorker. He said this. I want you to see this quote. The great liberator was a creation of the ancient Hebrews binding together their own national epic out of the tales of their neighbors. Along the same lines, another author called Moses, quote, the invention of a great storyteller, end quote. I want to just see that first quote because in the coming weeks, we're going to talk more about how the critics explain the story of the Exodus. How was it compiled and for what reason? And then I want to talk about the impact that that explanation has had on the church, especially in America and Europe. And some of you will recognize those impacts when we go through this. It's been dramatic. Well, how should we think about this? How do we respond to, to criticism like this? Uh, several comments. First of all, just because there are similar stories doesn't mean that the Moses story isn't true, of course. But it does make you pause, doesn't it? Except, you should know that casting a child into the water like this was not an uncommon practice in the ancient world. For one thing, this was one way of them dealing with an unwanted child. Now that's cruel, I know, but it happened. There's also good reason to believe that some families did this when they, when they just couldn't provide for their child. They were essentially trusting their child to the hand of providence, the, the modern uh, version of that might be leaving your child on the doorstep of the orphanage. Uh, now, knowing that this was something that was occasionally done, of course, it doesn't guarantee the truth of Moses' story, but it, it does help build a case for it. And, and it also helps build a case for why this might have been a recurring motif in the ancient world. Look, it was a recurring story in the ancient world because it was a recurring story in the ancient world. Secondly, there are significant differences between Moses' story and most of the other ancient stories like it. For one thing, Moses' story does not involve the direct intervention of supernatural beings, which is almost always the case in these stories. Many of the other stories do. Moses was delivered up by a real person, discovered by a real person, nursed by a real person, and mothered by two real people. Third thing is Moses' name itself. And this is fascinating. I want you to get this. Moses' name itself provides further evidence for him as an actual historical figure in the time in history when the Bible situates him. The name Moses is related to the Hebrew word Meshah, which means to draw out. It would have been likely that Pharaoh's daughter would have known some Hebrew. She recognized that this is a Hebrew boy, and she gave him a Hebrew name related to her having drawn him out of the water. What's even more interesting 
is that this name had a double significance, and Pharaoh's daughter certainly knew this. The, the, this, this Hebrew name sounded very much like the Egyptian word Mosai, which is derived from their word for give birth. The rulers of Egypt often combined that word Mosai with the name of a god to produce their pharaoh name, their ruler name. For instance, uh, there's a god, one of the gods of Egypt is the god Thoth. And, and one of its pharaohs, a pharaoh pretty near the time of Moses, by the way, uh, was named, he named himself Thotmose, or the one who was born of Thoth. And do you remember, you probably don't, but if you look back at Exodus 1, the first chapter, the cities that they made the slaves build, one of the, the names of those cities was Ramesses, or in, in Egyptian, Ramesse, or place born of the god Ra. Can you see how Moses' name fit perfectly with the historical context within which the Bible places him? One final comment. The Bible gives overwhelming and detailed evidence to support the actuality of Moses. The Bible gives evidence. All right, if you deny that Moses exists, you just have to ignore the Bible. I mean, not disbelieve it. You have to ignore it. As I said in week one, it may be that the primary reason to doubt this story is because it's so tied up with supernatural elements and many people cannot accept the supernatural, so they reject the story without even really examining it. If you acknowledge that part of the story is true, then you have to twist yourself up a bit to untangle it from the supernatural. You either have to do that or you have to acknowledge God. And if you buy this story, you have to acknowledge that our God a personal, all-powerful being intervenes in human history and that our God saves. Okay, frequently asked question number two. <laughs> why are we looking at this, Ed? I mean, generally, why are we looking at the Bible always here on Sunday morning? And more specifically, why are we looking at this really old book? Um, Di Diane and I tucked this away this is, this is back pocket reference for any time you're reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Diane and I uh, consider it a privilege when we get to do premarital counseling for couples that are about to be married. And one of the things that we do when we do premarital counseling is we give them this test called the Taylor Johnson Temperament Analysis. And it's just a test that you fill out yourself about yourself, you answer questions about yourself. And the, the results uh, render a... a uh, on, on nine different personality scales, they give you a self-analyzed score. And uh, it's very interesting. Uh, these individuals will often learn a little bit about themselves, and then we go over it with one, one another, and they, they learn a little bit more about one another. But one of the most fascinating things about it is we also ask them to take the test on one another. So I fill out you know, what I think of myself. I also fill out how I think Diane will answer these questions, and that's very revealing because we, we will learn sometimes think areas where they don't really know one another that well. And this is important because, look, that's important because knowing one another is really the basis of any relationship. Well, God wants a relationship with us. He is not interested in religious observance. God is not interested in performance. He wants a relationship with people. He wants to be known. 
And this is one of the primary things of, themes of the book of Exodus, as we'll see. God is revealing himself, making himself known to his people. And you cannot know someone without knowing their story, without knowing how they interact, how they, how they operate under different sets of circumstances with different kinds of people. The Bible is a completely true story about God's people interacting with God. Or, or better, it's really how God is interacting with his people because he's always the initiator. At times, God offers direct commentary about someone or about what's going on in a certain situation. At other times, we see his responses to situations or to people. And at still other times, his people come to understand how he reacted in retrospect, and then we get their commentary about that. And that is all recorded for us in the Bible. That's what the Bible is. That's why we study it, to know God's story, to know God. Okay. And this is a literal question that I have gotten. Okay, if it's so epic, why is so much of it so boring and hard to understand? <laughs> all, right, all right, I can't satisfactorily answer that question for you, but let me offer some helpful hints. First of all, remember, this is obvious, but remember this. The Bible is removed from us by hundreds of years, in some cases, thousands of years. And obviously, it's very removed from us culturally, dramatically so. It takes some work to get inside the culture of the Bible. And even within the Bible, there are different, very different cultural settings. It takes some work. So why do all that work, Ed? Because it's God's story. Go back to question one. If we're going to know him, we have to know his story to know how he interacts. And this is God's story. The Bible was written to communicate, and I don't want you to miss this part. The Bible was written to communicate, among other things, the history of God's activity with his people, the worship of God's people, what they did, what worked, what didn't, what was appropriate, what wasn't, and then finally, the full revelation of himself in Jesus. In fact, that's the whole point. It all builds and points toward that. But now, please don't miss this. The Bible is not written to entertain us. It's not designed to entertain us. I want you to remember this. When, whenever I'm preparing what I'm going to say here on a Sunday morning with us, I, I will ask three questions. I ask, first of all, what did this passage say? And what did it mean to the original audience? And then secondly, I ask, okay, what does that say to us? What are the principles? What are the truths? How does that apply to us? And then the third question I always ask is, what's the most compelling way to say that? What do I put on the screen? What illustration do I offer? How do I say that in a way that is most compelling? I want you to know the authors of the Bible do not really ask that last question. They are not entertaining us. They are telling us what happened. And they are not writing elaborate stories with rich detail because that was not the pattern of literature in the ancient world. So we will have to do some work to get at the message, and we must do that work because this is our sole source. This is, this is God's story. Wait, Ed, next frequently asked question. Aren't there other holy texts? I mean, there's the Hindu Vedas, and Buddhists have suttas and sutras, and there's the Quran. Why do we always focus on the Bible? Well, there's a long answer to that question, which 
we won't undertake today. We could, and we sometimes should, uh, trace the history of the Bible, the composition of it, so we can understand, understand it better, and also it, that will help us embrace the, the truthfulness and the reliability of it, because it is truthful, and it is reliable. And we could, and we sometimes should, compare it to other sacred texts. Whether you're a Christian or not, there are distinctions and differences that you shouldn't ignore. But simply put, we focus on the Bible to the exclusion of all other texts like it because of Jesus. If you're hanging around the edges of Gateway, please visit us, come back on Easter, because we're going to deal with Jesus directly on Easter Sunday. Um, but suffice it to say, in Jesus, God visited the planet. Jesus is God's full revelation of himself. The Bible is the text for that revelation, and it is the only text. The Bible is our sole source for that revelation. So then, why are we spending so much time looking at Exodus, this dusty Old Testament book? As we said a couple of weeks ago, there is no clearer representation of God's character than found in this book until we get to Jesus. And you cannot understand the Old Testament unless you know the story of Exodus, and you can't understand the New Testament unless you know the Old Testament. This book establishes the great theme of the Bible, the great theme of human history. And that theme is, we need to be rescued. And our God is in the rescue business. Remember that, that's our don't forget this principle today. We need to be rescued. And our God is in the rescue business. Don't snooze on that. Throughout all of these conversations, in fact, throughout your day, every day, it's worth keeping that in mind. We need to be rescued, and God is in the rescue business because there are those who think our essential need is to be educated. They think that we can solve all of our problems, personal and societal, if we could just get everyone exposed to the right education and the right ideas. In fact, the last 300 years of Western civilization's intellectual life has been built on that assumption. And then there are those who think that we can solve our problems if we just work harder. All our problems could be solved if we work harder. In fact, the reason that some people have and, and others don't have is because they don't work hard. They don't have the right work ethic. So the theory goes, the, the way to make my life better is to work harder. These, there are those who, who believe that you, you just need to work and you'll get there. And then there are those who believe you just need to know our, we need to know ourselves better. To thine own self be true and about 10,000 other quotes from Western civilization. In fact, the key to opening up your life and to having greater and better things for yourself, it's all inside you. Just get to know yourself better. Just unlock what's inside you. There's some truth in all of those things, but ultimately, at least in terms of the ultimate solution to our condition, to the human condition, and to what's wrong with us, and to making our lives better, the Bible fundamentally disagrees with all of those. According to the Bible, we need to be rescued. We will never solve our problems apart from being saved. This is why Jesus told his followers, the reason I came is to seek and to save the lost. We can't do it through education or through hard work or through self-discovery. We must be rescued. 
And as many of you know, that involves a decision. I give up. I believe your story. Help rescue me. And then the rest of our lives is built on that principle. Jesus, thank you for rescuing me. Make that ever more real in my life. Much of our effort in life, even our religious effort, is a vain attempt at self-salvation, at working harder, at knowing what's inside, at, at better exposure and more education, and it will not work. Our God is in the rescue business, and we need to be rescued. That means our job is to seek Him, to trust Him, to surrender to His help, to build our lives on Him, because our God saves. Jesus, we thank you that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we happily receive that this morning.